This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ur Umit Ungor to the show. Ur is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Utrecht and the editor of an interesting new collection of essays titled Genocide, New Perspectives on Its Causes, Courses, and Consequences. The book uh, is actually somewhat unique. It's, it's a compilation of essays written by graduates of the master's program in Holocaust Genocide Studies at NIAD, and I'll give Ur a chance to talk a little bit about what that is in a moment, uh, which is offered through the University of Amsterdam. Um, and it is more or less um, the best of the best from that program. Uh, and it's really good. The essays cover a wide variety of topics and regions. Uh, and read together, uh, it really gives a fascinating window into the state of genocide research in uh, now 2016, the year it's published. And so I'm greatly looking forward to talking with Ur about it. And so with that, welcome to the show. And thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for having me. So I always start by asking uh, our guests to say something about their background. Um, and so Ur Maybe you could talk just a little bit about how you came to be a historian and, and how you came to be interested in the, the field of genocide studies. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Kelly, for having me. It's a great pleasure and great honor to be on the uh, new books in genocide studies. Um, I'm also very pleased that um, this book, um, well, gets some exposure because uh, I think that it deserves it. And I mm-hmm. also think that the uh, the contributions and the authors and also the program um, uh, in Amsterdam, deserves the the exposure and the and the attention. Now, that um, uh, I named this for a reason because um, when I got interested in in mass violence and genocide, it's a very difficult question to answer. Always, um, there's a new book, a different new book out by uh, by Samuel Totten about scholars mm-hmm. of genocide, in which um, different genocide scholars or, or experts uh, explain in a very personal essay. What brought them to the subject? And I, when I was writing that, I was thinking, it's actually a very difficult question. I don't think I can pinpoint one moment, one epiphany that I had, but it became um, an accumulative process. And I think I think one of the issues was, of course, I grew up in the Netherlands, and uh, I grew up in the um, in the well, 1980s. I went to primary school. 1990s, I went to high school. And the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, it always loomed large um, in schools. So it was an important part of the curriculum. 
Mm. Uh, I used to go to the library and read uh, war novels. And these war novels, they were very, I found them rather eerie, to be honest. I found it almost unthinkable that that such a peaceful society, the one that I was living in, the 1980s, 1990s uh, Holland, uh, had once been the scene of really un- unimaginable cruelty. Mm. And so I got more and more in- interested in that. And so I started reading a little bit more about the Holocaust, first journalistic books, and then gradually more academic books. And um, by the time that I was enrolled in university, um, I had a decent knowledge of uh, of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Now, when I started the university, I um, I was not really interested that much in it. And I I enrolled in a sociology program, mm-hmm. and to be perfectly honest. The first year, I just partied. I really didn't get any <laughs> credits, to be honest. Um, but after that, at some point, I um, I had a bit of a, let's say, a small epiphany when, mm-hmm. uh, in the summer of 2002, I remember that well, uh, when I was uh, in Turkey, because I was born in Turkey but raised in the uh, in the Netherlands. When I was in Turkey, I was sitting in the um, in my grandmother's living room, and she was preparing food in the living room. She was sitting on the floor and. Um, and I think there was, she was cleaning onions. And there was a television program um, which featured a debate between, not really a debate, but a propaganda uh, program, really, between two two men, two historians, or pseudo-historians, who denied the Armenian genocide in, 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 very, uh, in, in very clear terms. This was on the Turkish state television. And I watched mm. this program for, for, a brief, for a brief moment, and then I turned to my um, to my grandmother and I said, Grandma, what about the Armenians in our village, where we are from, in, in the eastern parts of Turkey? Were there any Armenians in our village? And my grandma turned to me and she said, uh, of course there were Armenians uh, uh, in our village and they were all killed by the government in the First World War. Didn't you know that? Huh. And it was such a bizarre a moment when on the one hand, on television you have men in suits uh, pontificating about how the Armenians stabbed the Turks in the back and how there was never any genocide and if there was a genocide, the Armenians committed it. So, you know, the usual refrain of the genocide denial, it was on television, propagated on on state television. And on the other hand was my illiterate grandmother who had very clear, very concrete um, post-memories of that genocide. And so that the paradox, it struck me so much that I thought, you know, I need to find out a little bit more about this and so I started reading about the Armenian Genocide, and I became, the more I read, the more also I, um, I reached a state of shock. I was really uh, abhorred by the levels of injustice mm-hmm. and, and, and violence uh, visited upon the Armenians. So that led to me um, in, enrolling in the Master's Program of Holocaust and Genocide Studies in Amsterdam, which was just established in 2003. Um, and I graduated with a thesis, uh, which was a regional study of the genocide in southeastern Turkey, and that grew into my PhD. In my PhD, I wrote a broader kind of contextual historical study about how the Republic of Turkey was established, and especially mm. what forms of violence were uh, utilized by the, uh, by the then Turkish government uh, in, in establishing this homogeneous nation-state. Part of it was the Armenian Genocide, and there also violence against the Kurds in the 1920s and 30s. And that kind of brought me to a postdoc, and then later I became an assistant professor, and this is where I am now. And so I mentioned that this 
comes out of uh, uh, master the master's program that's associated with NIOD and the University of Amsterdam. Can you tell us a little bit about NIOD and what it is and what it does? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the um, the NIOD is um, the yeah. acronym stand NIOD. The the institute uh, acronym stands for Dutch Institute for War Documentation, and it was an institute that was established uh, um, actually right at the end of the Second World War on the 8th of May 1945 to establish independent research on the history of the Second World War in the Netherlands um, and the German occupation and the Holocaust and the problems of collaboration, Dutch collaboration with the Nazis. Um, And there was an institute that produced, since the end of the war, uh, an immense volume of research on these topics. So the, the definitive histories of that period of the Second World War, and, and even the war of decolonization right after, um, the kind of the canon was established then. Now, in the late 1990s, it um, became a part of the Royal Academy of Sciences, and it um, uh, in 2003 um, there was a there was a, well a separate institute was established, the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies somewhat modeled after the existing ones in North America, uh, which was an institute um, that had three tasks. One was research, academic research and publishing. The second one was higher education. So it uh, it set up an an entire master's program, a Mm one-year's master's program Mm -hmm. in Holocaust and genocide studies at the University of Amsterdam. And the third pillar was public outreach. So facilitating uh, and furthering public discussion on Holocaust and genocide and mass atrocities. And it's there where I really kind of um, where I, where I grew into the, into the academic that I was, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, in the beginning, let's say in the first, I think in the first year, there were maybe three, uh, three students. There were three mm-hmm. enrollments, and the professors were panicking, thinking, oh my God, you know, if, we get, <laughs> if we don't get enough students, then they might shut us down. And then now, actually, if you, if you look at the, uh, you know, if you speak with the current coordinators of the program, the director of graduate research, um, they get about 100 uh, applications now from all wow. over the world, actually, from Latin America, from in- Indonesia, from Turkey, from Europe, from North America. And we get um, 100 applications. Not all of them get through, of course, because we are selective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly several dozens, um, they get through. And it's a u- unique program that, that educates um, uh, students within a year. Some of them take a little bit longer than a year to do field work or archival research, mm-hmm. uh, and in that, I mean, in that respect, is um, it's a unique and, and, and a really, if you can say that, a beautiful program. So, so some of it is clearly the quality of the program um, and and just kind of getting off the ground and and gaining visibility. Um, does does the explosion in the number of people who are applying does that say anything about the broader level of interest in Holocaust and genocide studies, or do you think that's just the fact of the quality of the program? Well, if if I if I was the PR person at the university, I would say, that, of course, <laughs> because of the quality of the program, there should be no doubt about it. There but you go. Of course, of course, there are broader trends um, in. Um, uh, in the kind of global interest in genocide. So 2003, of course, we see the genocide in Darfur. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, we see, we, we've seen much closer to Europe uh, some, some very, very serious, very grave mass violence in, in Iraq, for example. Uh, right now it's ongoing in Syria. And I think that for younger generations, 
and by younger I mean uh, say people born after the 1990s, so after the Cold War, which um, is most of our students right now, most of our mm-hmm. MA students. Well, these kids, of course, they have very often they have a basic interest in the Holocaust, but what we see in these applications, and also in the in the, uh, the evaluations, course evaluations, or the evaluations of the entire MA program is that there's an interest to learn more about non-Western genocides, to learn about other genocides than the Holocaust, and also how how this relates to the Holocaust. And and I think it's that the kind of global cosmopolitan interest in this attitude um, in a a world that's becoming rapidly smaller, of course, because of social media and because of Internet. Um, I think think it's this trend among the younger generation that has bolstered uh, uh, this MA program. But of course, it's also very much about the quality of the program. <laughs> well, and the quality is reflected in, in in the students' work, which is really, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to say startlingly good, and I and I shouldn't say that because because all master students work hard. But this, there are some really excellent essays in here, um, and we'll talk about some of them in a, in a moment. But um, it does reflect the quality of the program. And and I said a little bit about how this this book came to be. Maybe you could say a little bit more about about the genesis of the book and about what kind of criteria you use to, to pick the essays that are in the book. Yeah. So the the idea to launch this book um, is something that I was uh, thinking about for um, in in the years in, in the years preceding the publication of the book, and I was kind of surprised or or a little bit startled by by the fact that a lot of students, a lot of MA students, um, whether they finish their MAs in one year or two years, whether they do a lot of primary research or not. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, they write really good MA theses, actually. Yeah. And they can be like 20,000 words, 25,000 words. And, say, you know, and, and, they write, and they, um, they write these theses, and then we just file them in the filing cabinet, and then they, the kids, they just run <laughs> off, and then nothing happens with these theses. Uh-huh. And I thought, look, guys, I mean, you've done some really good research. Why don't you try to publish it as a journal article, for example, or... Mm-hmm. And so we just started stimulating them to condense um, the, um, uh, their theses, to boil it down and to reduce it to, let's say, 25-page, 30-page uh, article and send it into a journal, uh, to a respectable journal, good peer-reviewed journal. And actually, many of them have gotten uh, accepted um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in pretty good journals. And so I thought, well, if, it's, if that's really possible, if the quality is really up to par, then why don't we make an edited book to profile the, this master's program and also the NEOT and the Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies. So I, um, what I did is I, I approached certain uh, unpublished um, graduates, people who had written excellent thesis but who were not necessarily interested in pursuing a publication. And I asked them, would you be interested in contributing to, um, to, this, uh, to this volume? And at first, some of them were a little bit skeptical, of course. Uh, as an MA student, you you might not have the self-confidence that, you know, a lot of them thought, well, really, me? Can, can we really publish an mm-hmm. MA thesis? And I said, well, look, the, the research is actually very good, and it's for a reason that you received a very high mark, for example, a very high grade. So we approached some of the best, uh, and they um, they agreed. I was very happy that some of them also wanted to, to collaborate. There's one collaborative uh, chapter in the, uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. And we put it together. We worked really hard on it. And um, so there's an introduction, and of course we structured 
the book as well, so not just a haphazard collection of, of chapters, mm-hmm. but we try to, um, to to structure it into the causes of genocide, the courses of genocide, and the consequences. So the before, during, and after. Um, and so, uh, together with uh, a preface and, a, and an epilogue, we sent it in to, uh, peer, uh, to a peer-reviewed university press, uh, and they accepted it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I was I was not very surprised because the the contributions are really very good. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's talk me. a little. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the book. And, and you start out your introduction with a, with a personal story, and so I'd, I'd like to ask you to retell that personal story and 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 ask you why you decided to start your essay that way. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very good question. Um, we are. Fortunately, we teach our students, our undergraduate students, to always maintain a balance between uh, personal involvement and academic detachment. Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of students can come to think, well, you have to be objective, and fully detached, and never show any emotion when you deal with, with issues of, um, of violence, including genocide and Holocaust. And of course, that's very lofty. It's a very lofty principle, but mm-hmm. the reality is we all live in societies, uh, and we are some members of um, we are citizens of states or we are members of ethnic groups or nations that, that were involved in genocide either as victims or as perpetrators and or as eyewitnesses indeed and I think it would be uh, I started the book with um, well with a with a personal uh, anecdotes of uh, one of my travels on the Syrian coast mm-hmm. um, this, this is an, an anecdote uh, that I that I write in the in the introduction I start with it like as a pitch for the book and in the summer of 2006 I was traveling in Syria this is of course before the uprising and before the war and mm-hmm. before all the bloodshed and it was you know, it was a tourist country and was, of course it was a police state we knew that but still they had it was cheap and you had great food and people were really friendly and it was always sunny mm-hmm. so I traveled through this town on the coast it was called Banyas um, and it was terribly peaceful place and interacting with the Syrians um, I found that actually there's um, there's so much harmony in this society or there's very little friction mm-hmm. but of course this was the you know still waters run deep and I think what I had touched was I could only I'd only scratched the surface and only superficially processed what was uh, you know a society with some very serious problems in its state also in its uh, inter-ethnic and inter-religious uh, coexistence. Um, and I was shocked when uh, several years later, uh, so uh, in 2013, in May 2013, some of the worst massacres uh, of the civil war in Syria that occurred in Banyas, in the very mm. town where I, where I had uh, smoked um, hookah and where I had uh, drank tea with friends. Uh, and everything was hunky-dory, really, on the beach that we used to hang out there. And, and then it turned into this wasteland, and and I thought, wow, you know, I, these are the people I spoke to, these are the people I interacted, I even saw their faces sometimes in my dreams, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be kind of, it would be good not to start with a kind of bland theory, or with a very abstract concepts, but to start with a very personal idea, and to take the personal idea and then to inject it into the scholarship, and to ask the question, hey, what can we learn from this? From this violence, and how does it relate to the broader field of genocide, um, mm-hmm. of genocide studies? And and then you move on, after having having kind of caught the audience's attention, um, 
and maybe giving them a moral stake um, to talk a little bit about, I, I don't know if you would call it a model or, or what, but, but something of a model for studying genocide. Um, one that identifies three levels of action and highlights the temporal complexity of genocide. Can you maybe summarize the model for us briefly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, of course, as a sociologist, I, I do believe mm. that mod models can be, can be useful. I don't think we should reduce the complexity of, of, of the historical record and of the, uh, of the manifold ways that people interact with each other and of contingency, which is very important. But I think that a model at a very basic level is a simplified reconstruction of, um, of, um, of events or of a process. And so what I did with this model is something that I patched together from different uh, studies of genocide, including uh, the works of, of Jacques Semelin, for example, in his book Purify mm -hmm. and Destroy, uh, including uh, uh, Donald Bloxham's uh, work on, um, um, on, when, when he looks at the institutional uh, collaboration uh, in the states. You know, why do why do certain ministries and bureaucracies uh, why do they cooperate in genocide? So I look at basically three levels of analysis. I could, this is an ecological model. The top level is the macro level, so I'm dealing really with the external um, relations of a state, the, the international relations, the foreign ministries, the diplomacies. So what happens uh, in the external relations of a state that is involved in committing a genocide? Right. So how, how did, for example, Milosevic's Serbia, how did it relate to the region, to Europe, to the world in, let's say, 1994? At the same time that it was killing thousands of people in, uh, in, in, in Bosnia and Croatia and, and, of course, later in Kosovo. This is fascinating to me. And, of course, this deals mm -hmm. with issues of sovereignty. This deals with issues of uh, humanitarian intervention. Uh, this also has, of course, really also relates to uh, regional alliances. And we've seen this now with Syria. It's fascinating to see the kind of the relationship between Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime in Syria and how mm -hmm. um, some regimes or governments that are involved in committing mass violence against civilians, how they can, uh, how they can be backed and how they can be, uh, uh, how they can receive patronage from more powerful states, much like in Rwanda, for example, in the Rwandan genocide, you saw that with France, um, you saw that with, the, with Saddam Hussein's Iraq, you saw that with the United States or with some European states. And that's kind of an interesting, interesting phenomenon that hasn't really been studied that much. Mm -hmm. I think these kind of regimes, they can only commit this genocide because they feel backed by a very powerful, either regional or global player. And so the second level, so we descend from that macro level, from the international level to the domestic level. I call this the meso level. The meso level deals with the domestic, the internal power struggles and conflicts uh, of all developments that relate to, uh, to the genesis of a political crisis and later a civil war or a genocide, uh, ultimately. So this is about the ideology, uh, very important decision-making processes. This is still probably of all topics in genocide studies. If we break it all down, decision-making processes are absolutely fascinating to me. Mm. And one of the books that I read when I was still a graduate student was, was Christopher Browning's um, really thick, like 500-page book on the, the genesis of the final solution, in which he... Mm -hmm. He devotes several hundred pages to simply, I think it's 18 months of, uh, of historical developments in Nazi Germany. 
when, when he zooms in to the, uh, into the decision-making process. And of course, the emergence of a perpetrator, of perpetrator networks uh, and the process of the segregation and ultimately the annihilation of the victim group. So the internal development, this is what interests me really the most. And then if we descend even further, um, at the micro level, of course, this is about the lowest level. So the village, the city, the region, maybe maybe the region is already meso-ish, but certainly also the individual level, or the group, the group kind of micro sociology. How do perpetrators commit violence together? How do victims experience the victimization together? How do third parties intervene or not? Uh, why did one village in the Rwandan genocide collaborate in the, in the killings, and another village didn't? Um, so, the, you know, the most famous book is, of course, Christopher Browning's, again, Ordinary Men, but also, if you think of Scott Strauss's The Order of Genocide, a very mm -hmm. influential book, um, there too, we, you know, we, we look at perpetrators. Why do people commit um, uh, commit killing? And one of our uh, authors in the book, Shell Anderson, is, uh, has a book forthcoming, uh, I think it's called The Criminology of Genocide, which is a study, mm -hmm. a comparative study of perpetrators. And... Of course, that is ultimately the you know what genocide is about. Also, it's about people uh, visiting acts of violence upon upon their fellow human beings. So this is kind of you know these are the three contextual layers. And what I'm also interested in is the interaction between the three levels. Um, you know, of course, this is as a model. Um, it sketches kind of the broad outlines. But the second dimension in this model is the temporal dimension, of course, and that's why we structured this book. Um, you know, uh, new perspectives on its causes, mm -hmm. courses, and consequences. So, I think it's interesting to look at the at genocides before the actual mass killing and during the mass killing, and then after the mass killing. And I think these three processes historically, if we historicize them, if we look at the chronological developments, uh, they can be studied separately. They can also be studied holistically. But if you take seriously the complexity of each three of these processes, then it's, uh, it's quite startling. So take a process of uh, crisis, for example. You know, if, you look, if, you look ju just as, uh, if you look at Nazi Germany, I think from 1933 to 1939, that is in itself complex enough, and it deserves study by itself, and why a society can, um, can polarize and can radicalize. Why is it that an extremist group uh, like the Nazis, one, how is it that they can seize power they can control the monopoly of violence. They can even get, uh, they can even uh, marshal quite a lot of uh, popular support from the German population. And that in itself, you know, think of Saul Friedlander's first volume. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's called Persecution, 1933 and 1939. And it's important enough to devote entire books to it itself. But of course, it tra you know, the transition into the actual genocidal phase is also is also serious enough. And that's where the actual killing happens. You know, how does that happen? Why does it transition? And ultimately, what happens after a genocide? You know, the field of transitional justice is a research field, and actually one of the pillars at NEOT as well, that deals exclusively with, with the aftermaths of you know, post-conflict or post-war, post-genocide. There's been a lot of research in different societies, uh, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Cambodia. So if you, if you, if you, if you look at these three dimensions, you can see how incredibly complex this is. You can look, look at the micro level before genocide. You can look at the macro level after genocide. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, of course, we don't want to pigeonhole research and certainly combine. 
but I think it can, it can kind of help structuring a lot of research on uh, on genocide. And if you look at any library, you know, walk into a library with books on on, on genocide, and you can clearly see that um, a lot of books they focus on on one of the aspects, either on the temporally before or during or after, or macro level or mm-hmm. micro level. So that's why we structured it this way, and I think it worked out you know, pretty well with, uh, with the contributions. I think they fit neatly uh, in, into one of these uh, one of these uh, uh, categories. Well, there's no way we can talk about each of these essays in the time we have available. Um, but I would like to hit, I guess, a few specific essays and and themes and, and essays that maybe embody some of the broader themes of the book. And I'd like to start by, by you mentioned, and I, I, as we talked about before, we, we actually formally started the interview. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm not going to get the pronunciation completely right on some of these. But you pointed to, um, did you say Xiao? Is that how you pronounce Xiao and Anderson? Xiao. Xiao. Um, that if, is a criminologist. And that essay is really interesting. So, so I'm wondering if you could say something about what a criminologist brings to the study of genocide, and and maybe what that essay does um, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, we must realize that the field of genocide studies is, a, is an eminently interdisciplinary uh, research field. Well, maybe we should say multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, historians who work on specific cases, there are sociologists who compare. Um, there are anthropologists who do very, uh, who use anthropological methods such as ethnography or interviews, and also, also of course, criminologists because, well, genocide is of course a crime, mm-hmm. and it's a probably well, one of the worst crimes that you can think of because when a state actually, uh, well, fails to protect its citizens, and it actually um, it deviates from the norm of. Um, of using its state sovereignty to protect its citizens and to uh, uphold its um, its uh, well, well, its principles as um, its principles of citizenship and it starts killing its own citizens, then we're dealing with a divine state with a what what Anderson called it, um, what Anderson calls in his uh, in his essay the criminogenic state. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I do actually there are actually two things that are interesting about about that chapter. I mean. There are many things interesting about that chapter. Two things that I thought were particularly interesting is, um, first of all, the well, what he calls in the conclusion uh, the paradox of state power. So, on the one hand, of course, states, and this is an, a relatively old uh, claim as well, that also was made by Max Weber and by, by Charles Tilley. On the one hand, states, they, uh, they monopolize power, and by monopolizing or they pacify society, so interpersonal violence decreases. Uh, so you don't have to, if you have a problem with your neighbor, you don't have to get an AK-47 and go shoot him and, you know, <laughs> and, and then get your lawnmower back. But you can just go to the state and the state can mediate. Um, but at the same time, so you know, while it monopolizes and while it pacifies society, states accumulate immense um, means of violence in barracks, Using soldiers, um, states have immense uh, stockpiles of weapons, and so, so on the one hand, you need state power to bring an end to genocide, and you need states to function properly. 
But the other hand is, is state power itself that can be the cause of genocide. So the concentration of power and concentration, of, especially of the monopoly of violence, is necessary to enact genocides. So the question that Anderson asked in his chapter is, how can states be the instrument of human rights enforcement when they, just like individuals, are often self-interested um, and uh, or even selfish? So I think this is a, um, a dilemma that's as much a political dilemma as it is an academic dilemma. I think it's a scholarly mm-hmm. dilemma. And, well, of course, the uh, criminologists, they work with different with different kind of methods. This is my second point, in that they, they can understand and, de- and decipher uh, what is often called legalese, so I, I am absolutely terrible at reading, reading, uh, um, let's say, you know, ICTY judgments or um, <laughs> kind of legal legal documents. I'm just I'm not trained enough for it. I, mean, I should yeah. spend a little bit more time maybe in the court in the courthouses. But there's a kind of um, uh, there's a, the methodologies methodologies or um, of um, of understanding. Uh, how, how legal processes function, and also how states, how they create for themselves legal loopholes uh, and legal, well, no man's land, really, to commit to commit mm-hmm. genocide. Remember, there's a famous saying that, I think it was by Rubenstein, the philosopher, that at Auschwitz there was not a single law that was broken. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to focus on the law. Uh, at the same time, you also have criminologists who, who do uh, who do interviews with uh, with perpetrators, for example, it's also uh, part of Anderson's research, and, um, and I think it brings a lot of kind of depth and richness to the um, uh, to the book to bring in different disciplines. And I think a lot of people actually have have different um, different backgrounds in, in terms of their discipline. Yeah, that's a high point to the book, and I have to say I I will be interested. I'm glad to hear you say that 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 there's a book coming, whether it's coming out of this essay or not. Um, Having just interviewed Timothy Snyder a couple months ago for for the podcast, and hear him talk about how that it is exactly in places which are stateless where where victims are most at risk, I would be really curious to see this. I, I will watch this dialogue unfold between the criminologist and the historian. But mm-hmm. um, the the second part of the book is is titled "Courses of Genocide," and here there's a really interesting essay that I don't think would appear in many genocide studies compilations. And it's, it's an essay by Alex, uh, I, I believe Alex de Jong, de Jong. Uh, um, about the Filipino communist guerrilla movement. Can you say something about what, what this essay is about and why you thought that was um, a real, a, an important contribution in genocide studies? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people wouldn't think that um, the, kind of the, 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 the ebb and flow of, of Filipino communism in the in the 1980s, that this is that really merits the, um, the that it merits to be discussed and examined under the uh, number of genocide. But what is interesting about uh, about Alex's research is, and especially in this chapter, is how uh, how he by examining sources that are otherwise not that easily accessible, uh, he manages to to uh, step into the shoes or maybe to crawl into the minds. Uh, of a very radical extremist group uh, of communists uh, in the Philippines in the 1980s, and uh, how they, how this group of men and sometimes women, how they imagined that the world looked. So what you know, what what kind of fantasies uh, did they have? What was their worldview, and how did they believe that violence was the way to 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 make the world conform to those fantasies and to those radical ideologies? 
instead of changing their minds, instead of change, adapting the, ide- the extreme ideology to the realities on the ground, they actually tried to do it the other way around. So they tried to change realities on the ground to fit and to conform to the extreme ideology. And why is this important? Because, well, genocides are uh, launched, of course, by political elites who have the will and the ruthlessness to um, to pursue and to launch a process of mass killing, uh, mass murder. And so the only way to really, really, really understand why genocides are launched is to examine those political elites, those radical political elites who um, who launch, but launch uh, genocidal processes. So whether, you know, whether that is, let's say, Stalin's inner circle, or whether that's the SS elite, or what is, what is often called the, uh, the Akazu, the small house in Rwanda, although there's a lot of criticism on that as well, it is important to examine why political elites think what they think and how they act upon those beliefs. So what, what you see here in, this, in these, these Filipino communists is that um, obviously they had a vision for Filipino society. If it was up to them, if they ever seized power, you know, they probably would have killed uh, a great number of people thinking that they were either bourgeoisie or they were traders or they were not the right kind of workers or they were intellectuals. So, you know, much like the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia. But what is interesting is that this violence, and maybe this is kind of unique for communism, for extreme communism, this, this violence is not only it's not only outward looking, it's not only outward, mm-hmm. uh, not only directed outward, but also inward. So you see it's purges of fellow party members, so of comrades really. And that's, it's interesting to examine why that's the case, because we have also seen that, um, that kind of violence, kind of inward-looking purges, mass killings of, of fellow party members, also occurred, of course, under Stalinism in the Soviet Union. I think mm-hmm. it's relevant because very often it is after a purge, or maybe sometimes before a purge, that, um, that, that a process of genocide, a process of mass murder is unleashed, unleashed upon a society. And we saw this also here, the two biggest concepts, the two most important concepts in, in the Filipino communist movement was on the one hand infiltration, of course, um, and, and the second important concept was probably treason. So the, the, the elites, they were obsessed with, um, with, these two, with these two concepts, treason and infiltration. So if the ideology didn't work, if the peasants rejected their ideas about land distribution or about confiscation, when that was treason, you had to be executed. And if, um, for example, if one of the uh, fellow comrades, if he didn't agree with a policy, then he was an infiltrator, and, and, he, and he needed to be uh, he needed to be executed, just to make uh, reality ideologically consistent again. Mm-hmm. And this is, I'm still I'm still uh, puzzled by this. Interestingly, you know, I'm still sometimes when I reread the chapter, I think, why are these people killing each other? You yeah. know. These are your comrades. You're supposed to, for whatever it's worth, this kind of um, uh, murderous, these kind of murderous purges are so counterproductive to your ideology and to your movement. I don't really get it. And until, of course, uh, so this was last winter, when uh, in a completely different context, I had the conversation with Alex about ISIS and hmm. about ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, when it loses territory. So rather than 
accepting the fact that they lost the battle or that they had to cede land or that they had to retreat, they blame it very often. In the, or, the organization blames it on the commander or blames it on infiltrators or on treason and actually executes a whole bunch of its own members. Hmm. And that actually, that actually happens. So in the, in the past couple of months, it doesn't, it doesn't appear very often in the news because they don't propagate, they don't propagate that, of course. Yeah. They don't want to lose their, their recruitment levels. But ISIS uh, has uh, obscene levels of inward violence that they use. So it is just as easy for an atheist or for a Yazidi to be killed than for an ISIS member who is critical, for example, or who doesn't conform fully to the extremely radical ideology, or somebody who smokes, or for somebody who has, uh, who has a sexual relation outside of marriage. So we, we must also be sensitive to Kind of the, the, the violence that is directed inwards of these extreme organizations, because very often it's a model for what they for what they will be doing when they seize power. So, and and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this essay, but I'll just comment. I thought as well the the essay uh, by I believe Franziska Karpinski and Alicia Ravinsky on on sexual violence and the Nazi genocide was was also very good. Um, and it, and it adds to what I think is a, I don't know, a newfound interest in concentration on gender um, in genocide studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the third part is uh, addresses the consequences of genocide. And, and rather go, than go through each essay individually, I wonder if you could say something about, maybe briefly briefly talk about the subject of these essays, and then maybe say something about the broad lessons or, or themes that emerge from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we have. Um, I mean, the, the book has three uh, three essays in its uh, in the section on the consequences of genocide, or maybe we should say the aftermath of genocide. Yeah. One one chapter by, um, by Laura Burhout, which is on uh, Sarajevo and how uh, in that war torn city, in the post war um, landscape of memory, how. Serbs and, and Muslims and Croats, how they compete for attention in the public space, how they compete, and also very often they make uh, mutually exclusive claims on the history of uh, of the war. Yeah, so you, you'll have a Serb memorial, which will say something completely different from a Croat memorial or from a mm-hmm. from a from a Bosnian Muslim a Bosniak uh, a memorial, um, and it and that seeps also into uh, the education, of course. Bosnia is a very divided society in which Serb children are, are learning things that are completely different from Bosnian children. And that is really, really painful, of course, because we know that social segregation is not a very helpful uh, development uh, for um, you know, in fostering reconciliation or even, even just basic coexistence. I mean, we know that from non-genocidal peaceful states uh, just as much as from post-genocidal states. So I think that um, every passing day that these children are educated uh, in, uh, in completely different curricula, people, they use their own discourse, and they watch their own television channels, and they read their own newspapers, the less people get together, the worse that looks uh, for, the, for the immediate future, but especially for the long-term future of Bosnia. And so that was a rather pessimistic chapter um, yeah. by, by Burhat. Even though, of course, there are initiatives, small, but there are initiatives to bring people together. Um, then there's a chapter by Suzanne Huxema, which is about re-educating Rwandan genocide perpetrators in the, um, in the so-called Ingendo camps. Uh, 
Ngando means kind of it means re-education, and it is when the well the Kagame government after the genocide when they had so many perpetrators didn't know what to do with them. Of course, they put them in prison, and some of them were uh, were uh, enrolled in re-education camps where they had to unlearn um, basically anything they had learned in the Habyarimana years and also during the genocide, and they had to conform. Uh, to the, the new ideology in Rwanda, which is Rwandanness and submission to the Kagame regime. And what is interesting there is that, well, this is, you might think this is a very laudable um, initiative, but of course what happens in these, in these camps is that people are indoctrinated with a relatively authoritarian uh, ideology. Right? They have to sing songs and they, they, have to, they cannot use the term Hutu and Tutsi anymore and but it's so unrealistic, as if people don't remember what happened 20 years ago. But it's really mm. difficult to to purify the public discourse from um, uh, from these terms, of course. So, on the other hand, there's there have also been some elements that have helped ex-prisoners to reintegrate into their communities. Right. So, whether they really believe it, whether they're really convic- um, uh, convinced, um, that will be really difficult to say. And of course, the, uh, the the objective is laudable, is national, is national unity and reconciliation. But of course, these rules are very strictly controlled by the Rwandan government, and so uh, it's not really I mean, in Gando. It's, it really doesn't function as a um, yeah as a kind of open space or free open space mm-hmm. to to, uh, to express your thoughts. No, it's a very clear indoctrination regime, of course. And then uh, the, the final chapter uh, is by Thijs Balkner. Also works at the New York right now, which is a it's really a comparative um, a study of um, transitional justice um, in Rwanda and Sierra Leone. He kind of looks at how fact finding or how history is uh, is established through trials, but also outside of trials. So how how do people really reconstruct? What is the influence of transitional justice mechanisms on establishing the historical record? Now, on the one hand, you have historians, of course, who will say, well, I'm not interested in what the tribunals have to say, and what, the, what the courts have to say, I'll just ignore it and I'll just go straight to the sources, right? And on the other hand, you have historians who are, maybe you, uh, who have a different position, right? Who will say, well, actually, it's very important that that uh, people accept a truth, a truth, that is acceptable to all of them, and um, um, that we are open for, for, for different interpretations of, of truth. And, but of course, this also leads to, well, to issues of distortion, of maybe extreme, uh, extreme postmodernism, in that, well, you have your truth and I have my truth, let's move on now. But of course, that's a little bit uh, too subjectivist for many other historians, including also mm-hmm. for myself. And it's a, it's a very rich chapter that builds upon um, a broad area of sources from from the, from the Rwandan Tribunal as well as from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Sierra Leone because they do produce a lot of sources, of course. Mm-hmm. For, for those people who are really interested, of course, they should get the book and read the whole thing. <laughs> Indeed, and the, the, all of the essays are good, but these, these three in particular caught my eye. Um, and uh, and I may actually be sending my students to the book the next time I teach comparative genocide. Um, what did, I noticed some of some of the authors here moved on to further education um, or to teach. Some of them have taken up other careers 
what what kind of career paths do your students take after they're done? Well, we have um, uh, we were actually in the process of doing some research on that on that right now. But our mm-hmm. our graduates, our alumni, we have a pretty good alumni association. Uh, they end up in different uh, in uh, in different jobs, really. Some of them, of course, they want to work in the tribunals, for example, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. the ICC or the Yugoslavia Tribunal or um, the you know the, the various uh, international legal courts. The international courts in The Hague. Um, that is generally, generally very difficult, of course, because you need to have a legal background for that. And not mm-hmm. that many of our students have it. Now others move on. They work for NGOs, like human rights NGOs and documentation NGOs. We had an excellent student who went to Rwanda and worked uh, with a media with, uh, mm-hmm. with a media office. Then others become uh, uh, active in journalism and in other forms of research. Uh, and then there's a small a minority, of course, as you know, it's quite difficult to acquire a PhD position. And some of them pursue yeah. their research and they do PhDs. And they're mm-hmm. they're um, they're one or two of the authors of this book who uh, who manage to pursue their research uh, into postgraduate uh, postgraduate research, and which has been uh, well quite quite effective. And because well, the foundation was already there, right? And these these chapters were the MA thesis, and if you have uh, your MA part of your MA thesis published. You have a very strong hand when you apply for a PhD position, of course. Yeah. And I could mm-hmm. I could recommend all master's students to do their best uh, on their theses because your thesis really is your bu- it really is your business card. Especially mm-hmm. if you can if you can manage to get it uh, to get it published, uh, that would be fantastic. And always make sure that you uh, that, that you mention that and put it on your CV pontifically. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and it, it, it's about time to wrap up. But I always, I always ask uh, guests at the end to 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 offer suggestions, a book or two, or a movie or both, um, things they watched or read um, that were meaningful to them. Um, it might be a new book that you're currently reading. It might be something older. Um, what should our listeners watch or read this weekend? Yeah. Um... Wow, uh, there's of course, well, there's a whole range of excellent academic books out there. But I think mm-hmm. uh, sometimes as academics we can we we, we can suffer sometimes from, from blinkers. So we we only read academic uh, uh, books, and we think that uh, we don't need to reach out to other forms of, um, of the, uh, to other writings, whether it's literature or there's the word the world of art, etc. And to be honest, I used to think that as well. I thought the truth is. Is in the is in the uh, is in the academic books, and I don't I don't have to read anything else. But I think that that that's wrong. I think actually art and literature has to pick up where we reach the, the boundaries uh, of academic of academic research. And I think especially two um, pieces of art really caught my attention. One is a very famous uh, historical novel by Vasily Grossman mm. called Life and Fate. And well, if you can finish it in the weekend, then that's great. But it's a really, really <laughs> thick book, it's a thousand pages. It's a, a wonderful historical novel, almost Tolstoyesque, mm-hmm. uh, which deals with the, the Second World War. So Vasily Grossman was a, was a, was a Soviet Jewish uh, uh, journalist who traveled um, uh, to the front, to the Soviet um, uh, German front, uh, from the 19 from the mid 1940s on. 
and he wrote a beautiful epic story about uh, different families and their different storylines in the in the book. And it just kind of the book grabs you in the first page and doesn't let you go until the last until the last mm-hmm. one. And I could totally recommend that. It's a very very touching book, very sensitively written. It's really important because Vasily Grossman in that book he makes an effort to describe what it must have looked like, what it must have felt like inside of a gas chamber. Mm. And we don't have any academic books because we don't have any sources of people who escaped from it. So yeah. uh, we have to use our fantasy or we have to use our artistic imagination. Uh, and Grossman has done a very admirable and especially very dignified and humble job in uh, in, uh, in depicting in depicting that scene. But the, the whole thing is just riveting. And it's just uh, on a human level, it confronts you with how much suffering there was in the Second World War on that front. And then speaking of suffering, the um, I'm also a big fan of documentaries. And we show a lot of documentaries to our students as well. Uh, I really think that in the past 10 years, maybe even the best documentary I've ever seen, are the two documentaries by Joshua Oppenheimer. So the yeah. Act of Killing, the first one, and the second one was called The, the Look of Silence. And this is a documentary, uh, The Act of Killing was about uh, Indonesian genocide perpetrators of, of 1965-1966. So these men are now all in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and they're just roaming around free and they're very proud and very happy about how many people they killed, how many communists, or alleged mm. communists and Chinese people they killed in 1965-66. And, and Oppenheimer manages to gain the trust of one of these guys. And it's a really affable, really sweet, jovial guy, and he's in his 70s, I guess. And he's got grandchildren, and he's wearing these batik shirts, or he's Indonesian, really. It's like, an Indo- it's like an Indonesian Hawaiian shirt. And he dances around, but then he also sells, he says, well, this was the roof where I killed like a thousand people. And he, he shows it, and he describes it in extremely graphic, and well, what is so baffling, utterly, utterly flabbergasted by this documentary is the complete impunity and the shamelessness that these people talk about their achievements, their, mm-hmm. you know, their, their genocide as an achievement. And I think that's the first time maybe ever where we, where we got um, a clear view of how, what happens to a society, so the consequences, what happens to, to a society when there's impunity and when there's no transitional justice after, after a genocide. Well, what happens is all of the perpetrators, they seize key positions and they run their society, and they kind of, um, uh, terrorize the survivors and the, uh, and the family members of the victims. And the second documentary is also very good. It kind of touches upon the same subject. It talks to perpetrators, older, really elderly men, who describe and who enact their killings. Because Oppenheimer asks them to, to uh, you know, to basically to play it out, you know, to, to, to show mm-hmm. how they did it. It also talks to some victims or to, to some uh, survivors of, um, of, uh, of that genocide. Deeply, deeply touching, extremely profound, uh, and I think everybody should see it. Not just people who are interested in genocide. I think everybody uh, must watch this, uh, these two documentaries. Yeah, I've seen the act of killing, and it's wonderful. And I will have to put, put its successor. I guess I don't know that it's a sequel, but its successor uh, on my list. Maybe not for this weekend, because at least here in the states, this is uh, this is an almost final exam time. So. Okay. The grading piles are somewhat intimidating, but um, yeah. but not quite as big as Vasily Grossman, but also an excellent book. So so I always conclude with one last question. Um, and you're done with this. I don't know how long it's been out in Europe and in in the states. Amazon tells me it will be out 
or by the time this interview goes live. What are you working on now? I'm currently involved in a, in a relatively large um, a research project that deals with paramilitaries. So um, in this project, in, in which I'm the, the principal investigator, there are two PhD candidates, um, and the project deals with, um, with um, paramilitary violence. It, deals, it focuses especially on the, on the conflicts in the 1990s in Yugoslavia and in Turkey. So one PhD candidate works on uh, Serb paramilitaries in, uh, in Yugoslavia, and the second PhD candidate works on Turkish paramilitaries uh, in the Kurdish areas in the 1990s. And the focus or the, kind of the angle uh, of this uh, project is to examine how paramilitary groups, how they uh, emerge, how they function, and how they disappear. So for states that actually can resort to the vast uh, apparatus of violence, as we've just, uh, as I just argued, mm-hmm. uh, when a state has an army and it has a police and a gendarmerie, why does it feel the need to establish paramilitary groups, mm-hmm. especially in uh, moments, periods of crisis, crises such as civil wars, and and how does that relate to the commission of mass atrocities and mass violence? Because most yeah. genocides and most Mass atrocities are committed not necessarily by police or by army, but by special paramilitary groups. And this is what we're the kind of perpetrator research that we're doing right now. And I, this research also collaborates with uh, uh, with a colleague from Utrecht University. Her name is Suzanne Knittel, and we set up the Perpetrator Studies Network. And you can mm-hmm. find it on Facebook as well as on, uh-huh. on, on you can Google it. And we try to advance research on perpetrators, which is tough but it's very rewarding and very important, I think. That sounds like a fascinating project. And I hope when you're done, you'll come back on New Books and Genocide Studies and, and, and talk to us about it. But until then, um, thank you so much again for uh, doing the interview. Thank you for having me, and good luck. You've been listening to an interview with Uwar Umit Ungor, the editor of Genocide, New Book Perspectives on its Causes, Courses, and Consequences. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I begin an occasional series of podcasts that addresses the question of how genocides end and how they might be prevented or mitigated. Later in the summer, I'll interview James Waller and Bridget Conley-Zilkic. But we'll kick off the series with Scott Strauss who makes a return appearance on his pod, on the podcast to discuss his new work, Fundamentals of Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention. I hope you'll come back to hear these interviews. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.